0: We live in one of the most religiously observant countries in the world. Many working-class communities and communities of color are rooted in religious traditions. Yet for over 40 years, the religious right has focused much of its energy on seizing control of religious narratives and institutions. This is heart of a heartless world a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org.
1: Welcome to Heart of a Heartless World, the podcast of the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. I'm Colleen Chaddix, and I'm happy to be talking today with Mark Colville. Mark was one of seven Catholic plowshares activists who entered Kings Bay Naval Submarine Base, the largest nuclear sub-base in the world, on April 4th, 2018. They went to make real the prophet Isaiah's command to beat swords into plowshares. Armed with hammers and baby bottles of their own blood, Mark will report to federal prison in June to serve a sentence for his part in the action. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. You know, just last week, a report came out that said 39% of the military spending in the world is done by our government. How much of this nuclear weapon threat do you think is, is business, is capitalism?
2: Well, I mean, uh, I believe that uh, certainly in the, in the courtroom uh, where we had our trial that I think most, if not all of us in the room all of the court members were in agreement uh, on one basic thing, that nuclear weapons are a scourge, and they ultimately need to be abolished if, if the uh, human experiment is to continue. Mm-hmm. I think we had consensus on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, when you look for, uh, for some deeper reasons as to why we can't seem to free ourselves from it, uh, obviously the economy would be the first uh, reason, you know, that, that we have somehow, uh, arranged our society now in such a way that, um, that our economy depends on, uh, on war. Um, and when it comes to nuclear weapons, it be, uh, it's obvious that, uh, our economy is, is, uh, you know, is based on, uh, producing useless things, um, things that, God forbid, they ever be used. Um, and the building, of course, the, the mining and the building and the production of, of nuclear weapons, um, it, in some sense, already launches them because it is so devastating for the earth and for all of creation, just the, the building and, and uh, development of them, um, most of which is done on uh, poor people's land and, of course, uh, Native American uh, uh, land. Uh, and so, um, yeah, that, uh, it's quite an accurate statement to say that, uh, you know, that that um, money is and uh, profit and greed uh, and and really the concentration of wealth into the hands of a few um, is what's behind this uh, this this insanity. Really, I mean, it's a policy of insanity.
1: You know, we're sitting here having this conversation in Connecticut, where we both grew up weapons are almost sacred here you know every member of congress no matter how progressive always votes the interests of weapons manufacturers because our state's economy is so dependent upon it and that's really something that's a deal that they've worked out with almost 50 states isn't it
2: oh absolutely and i mean as a native of connecticut um it's so obvious i mean in all of my adult life there's never been a uh, whether it's a progressive liberal whoever is uh, a congressional rep in this in this state there has never been a question about um, uh, not only approving military budgets but um, specifically uh, trying to get more money for the state of connecticut by um, by getting the contracts for electric boat, which is where they build the uh, the Trident submarines, yeah. So I mean, it's it's war based economy. Uh, uh, Connecticut is one of the uh, most war based states in the country.
1: One of the things that I was so interested in was you and your co defendants tried to argue that what you were doing was what your religion dictates that you do. And the court really didn't want to hear that. Um, Do you want to talk a little about that?
2: Well, it's probably not accurate to say that the court didn't want to hear that. They didn't want the jury to hear that. Mm -hmm. In the pre-trial phase, um, we raised an argument that had not previously been used, uh, certainly not in Plowshares trials. Um, It's called the... um, it's called, we call it RFRA, which stands for the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Now, uh, some of the listeners might be uh, familiar with the story that happened a few years ago when the, um, there was a bakery out in Colorado, I believe, where oh, didn't uh, want to
1: they, a wedding they didn't cake want to bake a, a wedding couple. cake for a
2: gay couple. And so um, they actually used the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to justify that. Um, and if, if I remember right, it went, it ended up going to the Supreme Court and they were justified uh, in their uh, discrimination. Um, so typically the, uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was, I believe it was passed somewhere in the early 90s. Um, and it was, politically speaking, it was, it was kind of clear that what uh, the purpose of that was, was to to bolster conservative arguments um, in courtrooms mm-hmm. uh, uh, about things like this. Uh, we decided to use the Religious Freedom Restoration Act because it fit in perfectly with, uh, with some of the argument that we were trying to make, which was that we were compelled to go there uh, for reasons of faith and conscience, um, and that the government did not have the right to intervene with our uh, practice of our legitimate... Uh, uh, religious beliefs those are there are, there are elements of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act which um, which are very important and anyway we argued this before the uh, before the actual trial mm-hmm. before a jury to try to get this argument approved mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. be made to a jury. and interestingly, during that pretrial process, we put a, uh, some expert witnesses on the stand, including a theologian from Fordham University, uh, Janine Hill Fletcher, and her. You know, she was accepted as an expert. And, um, mm-hmm. and anyway, through but largely through her testimony, um, the um, the court acknowledged that uh, that what we did was. Uh, expression of our uh, sincerely held religious beliefs the court acknowledged that um, that what we did was theologically consistent with the teachings of the Catholic Church um, and they even went so far as to affirm that what we did was prophetic and sacramental of course we had to uh, we had to enlighten the court about what those words mean prophetic and sacramental um, but in the end, they, they acknowledged uh, all of that, okay? Ultimately, they did not allow us to make this argument before a jury. And the reasons they used for that were, were very, very flimsy. The, uh, the government has a burden under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The government has a burden to prove, uh, if they can't prove that, uh, that we weren't acting on behalf of our own faith... Um, they, uh, they have to prove that, that the government's interest was compelling, that they have a compelling interest to prevent us from uh, exercising those beliefs in the way we did, number one. And number two, uh, the law states that, uh, that they must, if they intervene in our religious practice, that they must do so in the least restrictive means, with the least restrictive means possible. Okay. First of all, and these are arguments that the government did not accept. First of all, if the weapons are illegal, then the interest of the government is not a compelling interest, mm-hmm. um, according to the law. Okay, and secondly, uh, it is a it's a. Uh, it's a pretty steep argument to make in, in our context that, um, that the government intervened in the least restrict, with the least restrictive means available to them. We were charged with three felonies and a misdemeanor, um, and ultimately convicted. So the seven of us uh, were, uh, ultimately we were convicted of no fewer than 28 uh, <laughs> crimes uh, between the seven of us.
1: And just to there, there, was no contact with other human beings. What you did essentially was vandalism.
2: Well, well uh, you if messed you, up you their stuff. if you take the Religious uh, Freedom Restoration Act no, out of not it, which that. they did, they did. Yeah. okay, we don't. We could get into issues of, uh, you know, vandalism, property damage. We don't even recognize these weapons as property. They're not proper to anything, uh, anything life-giving. Um, and they're certainly not uh, private property. Um, they're not, uh, they don't have a right to exist, okay? But going back to what the government's burden to prove was, um, and, and as I said in my sentencing statement, it became clear immediately that uh, in the pretrial phase, that there were two decisions in place already um, before we ever walked into the courtroom. And one of those was that the legality of nuclear weapons was not to be questioned in a court. Okay. Um, And really that's um, in terms of the Ploughshares movement, which began in 1980, um, that's been one of the major um, objectives of the movement is to get nuclear weapons into court okay there ha- there is no means we've, we've tried everything in terms of you know lobbying uh, you know working doing political work within the system um, in order to you know really put before the nation before the people of this nation whether or not we really want to live with this gun to our heads all of our heads all the time you know we've been trying to you know, to get the courts uh, to wrestle with this question. And, you know, of course, uh, we, we Ploughshares activists have come to the conclusion that the only way to do that is to place our own selves at legal risk um, in order to get the law to be applied uh, beyond the border of that military base, you know. Uh, it's, it's lawlessness. It's a, it's a criminal syndicate, literally, what is going on um, at Kings Bay. And, of course many other bases throughout the country and the world. Um, and so, uh, yeah, if the weapons, uh, if the legality of the weapons are not subject to any kind of legal scrutiny, then where are we? Where, what is, what is the use of the law? I mean, it's, uh, we're talking and, and, you know, um, in terms of our own faith, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm speaking as a Catholic now, you know, um, I had to go there um, in order to be true to uh, to the creed that I accepted at baptism and confirmation. You know that um, uh, "thou shalt not kill" is real to me, um, and um, to uh, and so is idolatry. Okay, and these I mean, uh, just a, a literal biblical definition of idolatry is found in nuclear weapons. I mean, it it takes God away from. Uh, it replaces God, nuclearism replaces God with uh, gods of metal, as the psalm, I think it's Psalm 94, uh, one of the psalms says, you know, it uh, talk about these weapons of war as the gods that we worship. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we were compelled uh, to go there um, simply by our faith. And, um, and that's why we are now, uh, all of us have faced uh, federal prison over it.
1: You know, uh, in the judge's decision on, on using the religious defense, she said something like, if if we let people do this, there would just be chaos. Mm. So it was sort of acknowledging that the society we live in won't function in the face of authentic Christianity. I thought that was and, quite an admission. And not exactly...
2: Not, um not acknowledging the chaos that's already present you know with these weapons i mean yeah. the, uh, you know we're talking talking about budgets and economy and, and, and uh, greed and such mm. this and this is apart from you know we have a we have a 3 quarters of a trillion dollar uh, military budget as it is just um, far outpacing any other nation nations combined um, yeah. to uh for this but just for nuclear weapons, over the next ten years, the uh, the government has budgeted uh, what amounts to a hundred thousand dollars per minute over the next ten years on the nuclear on upgrading the uh, the nuclear stockpile. Okay, basically the Trident submarines are to be replaced uh, with a Columbia class, which. Uh, Nobody, nobody has any kind of technology, uh, killing technology that that is even in the same league with Trident submarines. And now we're um, we're developing a new class of them. Well, submarines have their own caucus in Congress. They do. We're talking
1: in Amistad House, which is Catholic Worker House, where you live and serve people in poverty. What's the connection between that reality? And the militarism in our country.
2: Well, as I, wanted, I, I one of the things I do in jail a lot is, is try to use the time, you know, productively in terms of writing, reading, and studying, and, and prayer, and all. And one of the things I wrote from the from the jail in Georgia ad- addressing that question was, um, for me there's a direct connection between uh, the table, the common table that we share here, an open door for meals here twice a day and the, um, you know the what's going on at Kings Bay and I said that the um, a plowshares action in is is an unmasking of the demon of militarism that every day lays waste to my neighborhood, okay? Because you can't—the the, $100,000 a minute over the next 10 years, that's been going on for the past 75 years or so. And that is, a, that is an outright theft and an assault on neighborhoods like mine. Um, and so for me, I— um, you know, having been, having invested my life and my family has invested our lives in this neighborhood on this, you know, in the, this immediate block here, you know, we, um, we are tied to this neighborhood. It's the, it's the poorest neighborhood in, in, uh, New Haven and the largest and the most child populated, um, with the the least amount of park space and all of that. But, um, anyway, this is, uh, this is our home. And so I very much in, in this, uh, in this action wanted to address the court and engage the court as somebody coming from this neighborhood, okay? Um, because this neighborhood in many ways is a microcosm of the world and the suffering of the world, um, <clears throat> which in large part is flowing from this, this unbridled commitment to militarism and endless war. Um, and so the wounds of that are not always... Um, immediately visible to those who may not live in this neighborhood or those who uh, are making the decisions in courtrooms and congress and such um and so i i went to georgia you know as a member of this neighborhood you know and as a citizen of the world really you know mm-hmm. um and that's why that's how i uh chose to uh, to engage the court you know that very much acknowledging that um this isn't just my uh my political views I'm expressing here. I'm, I'm trying to make, you know, I'm trying to give voice to uh, uh, cries of, of poor people uh, throughout the world um, uh, by trying to expose the reality of nuclearism and how it affects my own uh, neighborhood.
1: Your action at Kings Bay and all your actions throughout your life have been nonviolent. Mm-hmm. I've found, especially recently, that can be difficult to defend. I mean, I've, I've been told by people, well, you're you're promoting this strategy, but, you know, you're an old white lady. The old keepers aren't coming for you. How do you answer that kind of challenge?
2: Can you repeat, can that, you again? repeat that again?
1: I find that nonviolence is increasingly criticized Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. by activists by citing my own privilege. They Uh, say to me, Uh, well, you're an old white person. Mm -hmm. The oath keepers aren't coming for you. You know, the cops aren't going to pull you over and have that escalate into something fatal because your brake light was out. So how can you still say, this is the way, this is the path we have Mm -hmm. to follow?
2: Yeah. um first of all uh nonviolence is the uh is kind of the source that I live out of, okay, or I try to live out of okay um, My commitment to nonviolence is largely based on on exactly the fact that uh, uh I've become aware of uh, of my privilege as a white person, as a male in this uh, society um you know, to me, uh, faith, religious practice, it's really, to me, all about locating myself in the world, okay? Um, I don't think, I, you know, uh, uh, religion has had a lot to do with the evil in this world. I mean, starting with war. I mean, is, has there ever been a war in which God has not been mm-hmm. recruited? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I've come to the conclusion as an old white man that— um, That religion doesn't really have much of a value in this, uh, in our society, in our culture, in the world, if it's not, you know, centered on the development of conscience. And that's what I mean by when I say, you know, uh, as a person of faith, that my first job is to locate myself in the world. That's like whatever problem or issue or whatever that you that I take up as a person of faith. I have to say, well, where am I? Um Where am I in this problem where Where do I locate myself? Am I part of it? you know am I resisting it? Am I sitting on the fence uh, whatever okay and so locating myself in the world and that that 's about uh you know the catholic worker movement is is based on this philosophy of personalism, which means i take uh, I take problems personally uh, poverty militarism war violence um, all of these things i I see as uh I own them as my own problem, and then i uh i try to uh to root them out of my own life, um, which is to say you know it's kind of a preamble for saying that um you know my nonviolence is not um it's not something i uh proselytize over okay
0: mm-hmm. and if, it's if i'm
2: talking to uh to somebody who's been the victim of trauma and violence from the state uh, particularly people of color as we know you know this this unmasking of of what policing is has become in this country or what it or really historically what it always has been um mm-hmm. you know this this kind of uh uh racist response to the uh to movements for freedom uh, on behalf of uh, poor and uh, and people of color, um, you know, um, I for me, uh, you know, I I don't see uh, myself. Um, I pursue nonviolence um, as a way of being in solidarity with all of those movements. Okay, and I don't. Um, I have no place from which to make a judgment on the oppression or the experience uh, of oppression of others and how they respond. Um, you know, ultimately, do I hope that uh, that my example uh, in the world, uh, you know, practicing nonviolence is authentic enough to other people so that they may be attracted to it or might uh, want to emulate it or at least uh, raise questions in their own conscience? Sure, you know uh but that's how i've i've chosen to live um and and again it's um, it's kind of a life source for me is um engaging the world in this way you know and i i get that from you know from the many mentors i've had in my own life beginning with my my father and my my own parents um but uh yeah that that's uh that's kind of who i am i don't apologize for uh for my position on on uh nonviolence uh, also uh i think part of the Part of the question here, and I, you know, um, that's why I wanted you to repeat the question because um, there has, there's become this, this kind of, um, and it's really become acute now. I think in, in our, uh, certainly in the courtrooms and, in, um, in our, uh, in our dialogue and our narratives about violence and nonviolence, is this notion of property damage as mm-hmm. um, being inherently violent yeah. Um, yeah. That And it really, to me, this is um, this is really part of the whole white supremacy uh, agenda is that property rights are uh, have now in our system. I really believe property rights and private property has been placed above life, human life, um, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, what we're going to yeah. defend in this country. Um, you know you know you can when you're talking about violence and nonviolence uh, yeah uh, property is is more sacred um, really in our system it's uh, it's been clear to me that property has become more sacred than life uh, certainly the lives of of uh, poor people um, yeah So that, you know, given that situation, and again, we're not, well, we can get into the whole issue of property damage and so-called vandalism and all that. I mean, when, when we got to a jury, when we had a jury in our trial, they were, they were, Operating under this ignorance that the that the court enforced, mm-hmm. because we couldn't make any arguments about religion. Yeah. Um, we couldn't make any arguments about international law, which is binding and superseding law in all courts in the United States, particularly federal courts. We couldn't talk about necessity, you know, that yes, we had to break through that fence and trespass because lives are being lost, you know uh, because violence is being done to human beings. The court was not in, uh, certainly not interested themselves in hearing these arguments, and uh, at all costs they were going to keep those arguments away from a jury. And so our jury was was forced into ignorance um, and forced to consider what we did uh, simply as an act of vandalism um, and property damage.
1: You mentioned your parents. Tell me a little bit about your parents' example.
2: Well, my. Uh, my parents are, you know, were, uh conservative Catholics. Um, my father was a lifelong Republican. I often, in fact, I'm arguing with my three older brothers now about the fact that uh that my father would not recognize the Republican party. He died in 19 in um, I'm sorry, 20 uh 2010, you know. And um I mean, I think he'd be totally disgusted by mm-hmm. <laughs> by what Republican uh, the Republican Party has become, that's another question. But, you know, uh, my parents were, uh, obviously my first mentors, but, um, you know, uh, my father have a, you know, or my parents have a, you know, professed, uh, creed, which held nonviolence as, uh, as its basis. No. Okay. But I, they taught me Catholic values and, um, you know, uh, when I, as a, as a young adult, decided that I wanted to enflesh uh, Catholic values um, and, you know, the religion I was raised in, and I wanted to kind of enflesh that in my own life, um, really, I mean, the, um, nonviolence became uh, became clear, you know, as the way of, of uh, Jesus, I'm not sure how uh, how we always get it how so complicated. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> certainly yeah. didn't hear it preached from the <laughs> altar or anything. But this is, these are the values that, or certainly the implications of the values that that I uh, was taught as a uh, you know uh, as a child. And I don't think that's at all unusual. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, I think everybody else was taught the same, thing, or at least in my little town. Um, so yeah, uh, that's where. I always, I always trace back to my own parents and how they lived, um, you know, the way that I uh, choose to walk uh, these days. You know, you said
1: earlier that so many avenues to resist have been closed off, hmm. that you really feel you bring, need to bring nuclear weapons into the court. So that means more of the same, right? That means that this isn't going to be your last trip to prison.
2: Right. Um. Probably not. Um yeah, it's uh, you know, the the, the, the the plowshares movement has uh, deeply enriched uh, my life and it's given me um an avenue to uh express uh this uh you know this ethic of nonviolence. Um I've gotten to a point um at this point time in my life i've sort of have gotten to a point where um you know as i've i said in our recent festival of hope that uh you know uh people seem to worry about me uh going to jail and prison Mm -hmm. a lot um both people close to me and then uh you know people who are just sort of aware of of uh you know my public life or whatever they seem to have this um irrational um discomfort with uh with me going prison and my attitude at this point is you know my life and the life of of this house is based on three things community hospitality and resistance you know we we gather together um we build community in the place that we are wherever we are um uh you know a community that's based on you know nonviolence and hospitality you know Community, hospitality, resistance, All right. We, community brings us together. Hospitality turns our focus outward. And uh, resistance is an articulation of, of uh, the evil, uh, the systemic evil, and our response to it, you know, that these things are the um, sort of the elements of life, right? And so to your question... That's, if that's sort of the basis of my life, what does it matter if I'm on this side of the wall or the other side of the wall, you know? We're going to practice those things no matter where we are. Um, and that's, uh, you know, I, I, I suppose I've been, uh, it's been a long haul for me. I've been, um, for decades now, been involved in this kind of work. Um, but it really has I'm gonna be sixty years old this year and it really has come down to that for me that that those things, community hospitality and resistance, are um you know, are sort of the energy that or the life energy that I live out of and so what does it matter? I mean if people often talk about going to jail as if, you know as if the people on the other side of, of the prison bars are have been written off and they're not um there's not much value, and and mm-hmm. I hear this, you know, in so many words. I, I actually hear this from people I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're, it's such a waste for you to go to jail, okay? As opposed um, to a witness, yeah, or or you know, even God, the 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 kind of trauma that people uh, who are in prison right now are mm-hmm. are, are suffering through, you know. Um, The kind of uh, systemic violence um, that that basically characterizes most people's existence in in, uh, jails and prisons in this country. Um, You know, that to me that I mean, it could be the, you know, the place where I really belong is there on Mm -hmm. the other side of the wall, you know, not just for the witness part, but for the, you know. You know, I, I am able to walk because of the community that I'm connected to out here, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and I always say, you know, when, when we go to, uh, when we go into prison, any one of us, you know, all it does is it, it widens our circle of mm-hmm. community, you know. Now our community, you know, the four of my uh, co-defendants are, as we speak, in federal prisons right now, four mm-hmm. different federal prisons. And um, what that means is that our community now... Um, geographically, you know, at least, <laughs> it's uh, it's part of our community. The, the, our community has now extended into those places, um, which is a beautiful thing. And so I'm, uh, on some level, looking forward to going to prison, okay? Because it's another opportunity, again, to practice community hospitality and resistance. But also, there I've never gone to uh, jail or prison, whether it's a few hours or, you know, a year or more years, uh, uh, I've never gone uh, without it enriching my life mm-hmm. and deepening uh, my, um, you know, deepening my commitment and clarifying my conscience. You know that, and I. It's curious to me at this point how how uh, people who subscribe to the New Testament um, how they don't uh, understand that to read the new Testament from the place where most of it was written can actually be a fairly enlightening experience for a Christian. Hmm. You know, um, we seem to miss that, you know, we're right down the hill here from Yale divinity school. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, not to disparage, uh, the good people that teach and, and learn there. Uh, certainly I've done that some myself, but, um, it just, it kind of boggles my mind at this point that, uh, that that is not acknowledged you know that um you know uh, we don't necessarily need to go to a university to study the new testament um you know the uh the the relational dynamics that going on in the new testament are going on right now down on whaley avenue at the jail there you know so go read the bible there Um, Mm -hmm. what else what better thing can a christian at this point Mm -hmm. in time living in the most powerful empire in human civilization. What, what better thing could we do uh, than go there and, and see the world the way Jesus engaged the world from the bottom up, you know, looking, looking from the bottom up. That's, uh, that's what we're missing um, as people of faith uh, is that our, our pastors, our parishes, our, our church leadership is not pushing us into that, mm-hmm. you know, into that reality. Um, so, so my life is in some ways a response to that.
1: Well, this has been a great conversation and I thank you for it, but I never like to close up without asking if there's something you want to say that I just didn't give you an opportunity to.
2: Well, no, <laughs> good. Okay. <laughs> I, um, uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm, uh, grateful for, uh, for talking to you. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, again, looking for, I'm supposed to report to prison, uh, in Brooklyn, New York on, uh, on June 8th. Um, we're going to have a little celebration here, uh, and probably a prayer circle out there in front of the, in front of that place. I've never been there before mm. until they kick all my friends out and then we'll, uh, we'll go in, but it's, um, it's really, uh, It's another step on the journey, looking forward to it and uh, kind of, you know, again, because I have a a strong community of people behind me that uh, there's no, uh, there's no fear involved and there's no, um, there's no reason to grieve over it. It's a, it's actually a celebration. So thanks. Thank you.
0: This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. This episode was produced by Jeremy McMahon with intro music by Party Dark. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org.